have your Bible or uh, some device, you'll be looking at the text with us this morning. Um, we're going to be in Second Samuel, Second uh, Samuel chapter four. So we've been working through First um, and Second Samuel over the last uh, few months, um, just kind of chapter by chapter. And and really, where we're at right now in Second Samuel is it's a pretty chaotic scene. Um, Saul has been killed in battle with the Philistines, so he is he's dead. He was the king. David, who has been anointed king by God, but not yet recognized by the people, um, has a, a second challenger to the throne in one of um, Saul's sons. And so what we've seen is a lot of violence, a lot of uh, betrayal. Um, last week, um, the second uh, Saul's son, um, Ishbosheth, his general, leaves him to go over to support David and his chance to become king. David's general, though, is um, bothered by that, and so he kills the one that's coming over to help, right? And so we've just seen a lot of betrayal, violence, chaos, and this long, slow rise to the throne for King David. Um, and so we're going to pick up in chapter 4. And remember, as we, we walk through Second Samuel, First and Second Samuel, we're seeing both history as it's laid out um, some 3,000 years um, ago, the rise of the monarchy in Israel, um, and, and also seeing like the hand of God working amongst His people that are both sometimes obedient and sometimes really broken, right? That we just are seeing the realities of life, that it's difficult, um, and yet that God is, is working in the midst of that, um, moving His story forward for His glory and for our good. And so what we're going to see in the beginning of chapter 4 is the continued just collapse of Saul's house, right? Like that, that his reign and legacy is, is being stripped away. Remember, it, it, this bec- was because of his unwillingness to obey the Lord that when he walked away from Samuel, who was the prophet, and, and tore part of Samuel's robe away, right? That Samuel turns to him and says, listen, what you just did is you tore my robe. That is what the Lord is doing in your disobedience. He has torn um, the throne from you, and none of your heirs will be the king. Like the Lord will raise up his own king, it's been torn away from you. And so we've seen Saul killed at the very end of 1 Samuel, and his three, three of his sons were killed in battle against the Philistines um, as well, right? Um, now, last week, um, his general, right, who was a relative of his, who was leading his army, um, who, had, who had raised up a new king and was, but was really the one in control, he's been murdered. And we have his son, Ishbosheth, who was just kind of a puppet. He was weak. Um, his general would, would, would bow up at him and he wouldn't respond. Um, he was just a weak individual. Um, look at verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner, who was his general, had died at Hebron, his courage failed. And all of Israel was dismayed. And so what he realizes in this moment is even though he's the king, the one who was actually in power has been murdered, has been killed, that he's got no chance of ruling, of leading. And so what happens, because people now realize there's a power vacuum, two of his lower-ranking military officials, that they, they kind of led raiding groups into neighboring areas to help fund the military, um, they decide to kill Ishbosheth. And so we're going to pick up in verse 6. These two brothers, uh, Rechab and Benah, they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him, meaning Ishbosheth, in the stomach. 
And then Rechab and Benah, his brother, escaped. And when they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him, they put him to death, and they beheaded him. And they took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night. And so we just continue to see the violence moving forward. That now as, as um, Ishbosheth's military general has been killed, he's feeling powerless, he's in the house midday, he's taking a nap, two of his men come in, um, from his own tribe, these are not spies from David, these were two of his members of his own tribe, come in and they kill him. And they behead him and they take his head as evidence, as proof, and they head out. And in, in between this, they, there's a brief mention that Saul had a grandson, which was Jonathan's son, David's friend, um, and that he, when they found out that Jonathan and his grandfather Saul were killed, that they were fleeing, he was five years old, um, that the nurse basically dropped him, and he was, he was crippled, he was, he was lame. And so what it's showing here is, listen, the general that served Saul, he's dead and gone. The three sons died in, in battle, the, the son that's remaining, right, has now been killed and beheaded. The grandson, if you want to know about him, he's, he's unable to do it, he's a child, and he's, he's not going to be physically well. And so it's just showing that the house of Saul has crumbled, and it's crumbling. But these two military guys, these low-ranking kind of raiders, um, take the head, and they're headed off to see David, who they believe now will be king. And let's pick up in verse 8. Um, and they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and his offspring. And so you can imagine these two brothers, and they're standing here, and just this bloody scene as they're holding up the head saying, look, proof, we've done this for you. Listen, we know what Saul, he tried to kill you. We know you're trying to get the, the throne. Here's the way to it. And it's just this kind of bloody, violent scene. They're trying to curry favor with the king, right? They're thinking, man, if we make the path to the throne better in this kind of power vacuum, if we grapple for, for power, for prestige, for reward, this king is going to put us in, in, in power. He's going to give us a reward. He's going to take care of us. We've actually seen this already happen, that one came claiming to be the one that had killed Saul, thinking that, that David would be grateful for that. And David had him put to death. He said, how, how could you touch the Lord's anointed? When David had opportunity to kill the king multiple times and chose not to, he was like literally asking, how could you have touched the Lord's anointed? You have not trusted God. You have gone against him in doing this. Now, Ishbosheth was not the Lord's anointed, but he was a, a man in his own home sleeping, right? And these men are now holding his head. And look at how David responds. And David answered, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and I killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for the news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and their feet and hanged them beside the, beside the pool at Hebron. But he took the head of Ishbosheth and he buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Right? We just, like the bloodshed, just, it just continues. Right? And you can imagine as they're sitting here with their, their guilt in their hands, and David begins to say, 
Yeah, you think this is good news. It's not. The panic, right, of going, oh, we have made a fatal error. And they have, because David now executes them, has them put to death, and then he shows respect to Ishbosheth and, and actually buries right his head. Um, just kind of a violent scene. But at this point now, there's no kind of further challengers to the throne. And so we're going to see how the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, respond when Saul's house has been decimated. What are they going to do with David? And so let's pick up in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, so over the entire nation, he reigned over all of Israel and Judah for 33 years. And so there's kind of this moment of finally, right? Like we have had this long buildup of years of David running from Saul, longing right, to, to see the Lord rescue and, and put him in, in, in the place that he has promised where he was anointed. And now finally, the entire nation of Israel has said, David, you're our king. And look at the reasons they give. They say, one, you're, we're your bone and flesh. They're saying, like, we, you're one of us. You are an Israelite, right? Like, we are all one people. So he says, you're one of us. Your military expertise, even when Saul was king, it was you who led out. Remember, he was the one who defeated Goliath. He was the one who had led out and brought victory for the nation of Israel. So we know you've led well. Um, you're one of us. They said, and the Lord has said, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. And so there's a bit of this, it's, David, you have to wonder if he's going, so why did it take so long? Right? Like if you had seen my leadership ability, if you knew what Saul had been like, right? if, you, if you knew what the Lord had said this was going to be, why have we had to go through all of this? And we were reminded of Abner's right before he was killed. Remember, he had gone to the elders and said, listen, I'm throwing my support behind David. I believe this is the one we should follow. And so we see his work here kind of coming to fruition that God has anointed David and now the nation of Israel is anointing him as king, recognizing him as king. And so the rest of chapter 5 this is going to hit on some initial kind of highlights of his reign, right? Because he's been, Hebron has been his capital city, and yet Jerusalem is known as the city of David. And so we're going to see how Jerusalem comes to be. Look in verse 7, or sorry, verse 6. So the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here. The blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. And so at this point, Jerusalem is not a, a major city. It's a small place. It is extremely well fortified. It's high. It's got protection on three sides. And basically the idea was, like, we could put the weakest people in our community up here on the walls and push rocks over. Like, you can't get in. Like, we don't even need our best men. And so they're insulting David, saying, you, you can't come in even if you want. You're not going to 
to eliminate us. And so David has taken some of his men um, and, and go down to verse 9. And David lived, or I'm sorry, verse 7. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, and he basically insults him and says, hey, when you go in, make sure you kill all the blind and the lame. And he's not saying, take out the handicap, right? He's, it's kind of like if someone said, um, hey, old man, you can't beat me in basketball. And then you beat them in basketball, and you're like, so old men can beat you in... Right? Like he's using their insult back at them. And he's saying, go in and take out those who said I couldn't come in, the blind and the lame. And David lived, in verse 9, in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. This is like the, the fortifications, how they kind of leveled the city. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And so he's, he takes it, and basically they, the way they went in was there was kind of a well system, and the men went up through the well, right? The only place that wasn't strongly fortified, that what they thought was impenetrable, they go up and they take the city and they win. And in verse 11 and 12, we begin to see that people are recognizing now David as king in other nations. They're seeing Israel as a legitimate nation and, and potential threat. Verse 11, Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David in cedar trees also, carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Then in verses 13 through 16, we're reminded that David takes further wives and further concubines and has more children. And then we have a common, regular enemy come back in verse 17. The Philistines. Look at verse 17. The Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, and all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. So we've seen Israel and the Philistines fighting back and forth from even right before Saul, and now throughout this, that they're fighting. They, and now they realize, recognize, hey, David's not for us. He's the king over this nation. People are recognizing it. He's, he's powerful. We need to go before he gets too strong. And so they send right, their army to fight him. And we see David's response. Verse 19, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perazim. And David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. So if you remember in 1 Samuel, the Philistines rout Israel at one point. And in, in the routing of them, the, the Israelites had taken the Ark of the Covenant, right? This, this reminder of God's presence, and they attempted to weaponize it. And they think if, if we bring this up, God will just like wipe out our enemies. But they weren't inquiring of the Lord. They weren't seeking the Lord. And they take it, and the Philistines rout them and defeat them and take the Ark of the Covenant, right? This, this symbol for Israel of God's presence among them. And they take it into a Philistine temple. And remember what happens? Like their God falls over. Right, bows at the feet of Yahweh, the Lord God. 
So they set their idol back up, and the next day it falls over, and its head is gone, right? Like this stone thing has, has been cut to pieces. And they realize, hey, we don't think we want this here anymore. And it and begins this journey of trying to get it back to Israel. We have a reversal of this here in chapter 5, where Israel routes the Philistines, and they leave their idols behind, right? And they don't have power over Israel, right? There's no... There's no fear or worry or mention of them. They've been left behind as the stones that they are. In verse 22, the Philistines come back for some more. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up, but go around to the rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. And so, chapter 4, right, we have the fall of the house of Saul. Chapter 5, we have David finally made king. And then we just have some kind of quick hitters of his time um, early on as, as king over, over Israel. But if you were reminding, if you are remembering in 1 Samuel, Saul had some initial success as king too, right? He won some victories, um, was, was being praised by the people. It started off well and quickly unraveled. So the question for us this morning is this, right? Is, is David going to be obedient? Because what lost Saul the throne, what lost him the ability for his sons to have the throne, was a lack of obedience. In 1 Samuel 15, remember that Samuel comes to him when Saul has disobeyed the Lord and says, listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. Like you haven't done what the Lord asked. You didn't listen to God. You didn't trust Him and you didn't obey Him. And what God wants more than religious ritual, He wants your heart. He wants obedience. And so the throne has been taken from you. So listen, David's not a perfect man. Right, we've seen that already. If you know David's story over kind of the, the whole arc of his story, you know he's not perfect. We see even here that he is taking wives upon wives and concubines. He's doing this for political reasons, right? Even though in Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, it says this when God is telling them about the day where they will have a king, He says, And he, meaning the king, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Right? It goes on to say so he needs to continue to seek me and to know me and to know the Word. Right? So that he's not led astray. And so what we're reminded here, even just in, in a brief aside, is that David is not a perfect man. We've seen him out of rash of his pride being struck, want to kill Nabal, right? And it takes a woman saying, hey, this isn't how you want to do this, right? And he responds well. So we've seen pride and we've seen um, excessive violence and we've seen him take women that were for only a political um, gain. He's not perfect. And this whole idea of women is, is a foreshadowing of, of, of a downfall of David. But as we look at chapters 4 and 5, we see for the most part David is being obedient. That he is doing what Saul 
did not do. Right? He is trusting the Lord and putting obedience before sacrifice. So go back to chapter 4, verse 9. When these brothers come, thinking that they're going to gain favor with the king, listen to what he says. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. What is he telling them? He's like, look, because God is alive, I don't need to take things into my own hands. And I don't need you to kill Ishbosheth for me. The Lord has taken care of me. The Lord has rescued me. Right? The reason I didn't kill Saul when given opportunity is the Lord is my Redeemer. He's the one who's going to take care of me in adversity. And so we've seen God do that, rescuing him by calling armies that are pursuing him back into a different battle. We've seen him do it right time and time again for years and years now that David is saying, listen, I trust God. I trust Him. And His hand will lead me. His hand will guide me in any adversity. I don't need others to do that for me. He knew that he was, had been anointed king, and he trusted that God would eventually bring that to the place of him being the king. Even though things were difficult and long-suffering, and it took much longer than he would have probably anticipated. Go down to verse 12. We see this strange, violent scene where David has these two brothers killed, and then he displays their dismembered bodies, and you're thinking, wait a second, how is this an example of obedience? This seems disturbing. If we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 21, listen to verse 22 and 23. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, you shall hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land from that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Right? He has, is displaying them as a warning to others. Right? That they have done something that was worthy of death, and it is cursed. We go to chapter 5, 6 through 10. We see him fighting the Jebusite. Again, you're thinking, how is this violence? How is him taking the city of Jerusalem obedience? But again, if we go back to Deuteronomy, this time chapter 20, verse 17. When the Lord is talking to his people after he's removed them from Egypt and he's leading them into the promised land, here's what he tells them. Um, the Lord your God has given you an inheritance. You shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. And he mentions seven, seven nations, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. That they may not teach you to do according to all the abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. Right? Like, David knew that the land had still not been taken the way it was supposed to. Right? That he as king now is continuing to see that through and forth. Right? Chapter 5, verse 12. After the king sends him these gifts, David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. That he had exalted his kingdom Listen, for the sake of his people Israel, we see humility here from David. That he's not beating his chest and saying, yeah, I'm powerful. Yes, I'm the king. Look at me. Look at the people bowing down and fearing me and sending me gifts. He says he knew that he had been exalted as king and that the nation had been exalted. Why? For the benefit of the people. 
that they would have an opportunity to have peace so that they can know God, that the nations would be drawn to them as they see the character of God reflected in a nation that knows and loves and trusts God. We go down to verse 19 in chapter 5. We see David inquiring of the Lord before going into battle. Remember Saul? Saul just goes into battle. Even when Samuel tells him to wait and wait for him to come, he just runs into battle. That he's not inquiring of the Lord, that he's often having to be reminded by servants and others, hey, shouldn't you ask God? Like, shouldn't you go to Him? That we see in verse 19 and in 23. Right? That, that David is often, and we've seen this throughout First and Second Samuel, that David is inquiring of the Lord often. And that the Lord gives him two different responses right, in his battle against the Philistines. In one, it's like, hey, go fight them. You're going to win. In the second, he says, you don't go meet them. Right? You go around to the rear and you wait for my signal, which is important because in verse 24, um, we see this. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you. Saul constantly wanted to run out before the Lord. And yet, what has God told His people? Like, I'm your king. Ultimately, I'm your king. And I will give you a king. Right? But I'm the one that's gone out before you. I've protected you. I've provided for you. I have led you. I have cared for you. And David is showing that he will trust God to go before him. And he will inquire of the Lord and he will take the second seat to the Lord. And he will let God go out before him. And verse 25 simply just says, And David did as the Lord commanded him. Right? So we look at this chapter 4 and chapter 5, this kind of strange sequence of events. And, and what we see is David not being perfect, but we see for the most part David obeying God, going to God, trusting God, waiting upon God, and fulfilling commands that God has given. That he's obedient. He's showing his, king, his kingship is starting differently than Saul. So the question then is, is for us, right? We're some 3,000 years removed from this. Different setting and history, different location entirely. So what does it look like for us then to be obedient this morning? Right? It's not violence. Right? It's not a call to violence. But, but I think we have to know ourselves. Because for some of us, right, we're, we're prone, like we're the studiers, right? Like we just want to know things and know things and we sit with the Lord and we study and we know words and we know meaning and we know nuance and we know ins and outs. And yet it just never seems to get to actually obedience. Right? That we, that we think knowledge is sufficient for obedience rather than obedience being sufficient. And yet for some of us, it's actually our, our tendency is to, to have action, right? To do things for the Lord without connection. Right? And yet Jesus tells us in John 15, right, if you want eternal fruit, if you want fruit that lasts, it has to be produced from the vine. That you are connected to me and, and fruit is produced that's lasting. And yet even knowing that, sometimes we, we would say things like, I'm just going to go do and ask the Lord to bless it. I have to remind myself of this often, that ministry isn't everything. Jesus is, though. And so for some of us, right, we, we, we're, we're getting by on past momentum, past knowledge, past understanding, and we're trying to, like, to reach into that occasionally as we go and do things. And yet it's not one or the other. It's that we are walking 
with the Lord. Close. That we are in His Word. That we are trusting Him. That we're hearing from Him. That we're inquiring of Him. That we're in, his, in, in, in prayer and in Word and amongst His people. And then we're obeying what He calls us to. And what the Word has given to us. That it's not just that we say, hey, I have knowledge. I don't have to look and obey God. Or that I have action and I don't have to know the things of God. Church, Jesus rescues us. And then He calls us into obedience. It's not our obedience that saves us. It's our obedience that proves, that shows that we are walking with Jesus. Listen to how Paul says this in uh, Ephesians 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. A verse many of us know. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, right? It's not your obedience that's gained this for you. It's not a result of work so that no one may boast. But often we stop there. But listen to verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he says, listen, Jesus' is life, Jesus' is death, Jesus' is, right, resurrection, those have secured for us salvation. Right? That, that obedience is what gains us salvation. But once Jesus has rescued us, right? once we trust Him, we then walk in the good works that He's created us for. Not that that's what saves us or even what keeps us saved, but it's reflecting the very character of God. We are obedient. Paul also in 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. Right? He made us right to Himself. And then He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, right, church, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin, meaning Jesus, who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Right Again, it's this reminder that Jesus has done the work, that He's the one receiving the glory and the honor and the praise, that He has made us right with the Father and taken us in as adopted sons and daughters and given us access through prayer so that we can then be heralds, ambassadors, on behalf of the King, saying reconciliation is possible. And I'm an example of it. I've received it. I didn't do it. God did it. Trust Him. Know Him. Love Him. Follow Him. Reconciliation, peace, and restoration are possible. And so church, our obedience isn't right to gain something. It's because we've gained something. And we want people to see the character of God. The church is why we live out the one another's together. That the gospel can be on display amongst a people like this. That we see long suffering, and we see perseverance, and we see unity when the world wants to divide, and we see forgiveness, and we see prayer, we see care and concern, we see love and support, like just dozens and dozens of things that we do that the world would look at and say, I'm not sure that I've seen that before. And we don't say, we're pretty impressive. 
say Jesus is faithful and He's reconciled us and He has torn down every dividing wall that stood between us. And so He's brought those who were near and those who were far together and He's made us one. And Jesus is our unifier. And Jesus is our peace. And Jesus is our hope. And Jesus is everything. And we are simply trying to reflect His glory and His character to the world. Right? We are reflecting Him, not ourselves. So church, we have been called the Great Commission to walk in obedience, to make disciples in every arena of life. And that is not merely the pastor's job. That is all believers' job. That we are reflecting the character of God, pointing to the hope that we have in Christ in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our work, with our kids, with our grandparents, with our peers, with those that we do know and those that we don't yet know, right? That we are living this out, pointing to Jesus and the hope that we have in Him, trusting, depending, following. And so we're, we're going we're gonna to move as we, as we wrap this up, but, but maybe just a question for you to consider this week. Um, or to discuss in, in, in gospel community, is what might it look like for us today to be sacrificing rather than obeying? Right? Like, Saul was convicted, right? And the, the kingship was taken because he was willing to sacrifice and do religious duty without obeying. So for us, what does that look like? It might look like church attendance and not believing transformation is necessary. Like, I do the religious thing, and then I get the religious benefit, but I don't really have to do anything different. Maybe it's putting forth our knowledge, right? And not walking in obedience. Maybe it's saying, I know this, so I'm good. I don't, I don't need to do anything different. Maybe it's relying on past knowledge and momentum rather than walking in continued nearness with God. Right? Or, or a number of other things. So here's where we're going to finish this morning. One final thought. Here's the question. In chapters 4 and 5, or maybe all of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel so far, does the violence make you uncomfortable? Right? Like there's, there's a part of me that's just kind of sort of like, man, I know Scripture's not condoning it, but there sure is a lot of it. And, and so what do, we, what do we do with it? Like what do, we, what do we do with just the violence of even someone that is said is a man after God's own heart like David. What do we do with this? Remember, as, as 1 Samuel is beginning, we're coming out of the period of the judges, and multiple times throughout the book of Judges, this phrase is used. Because there was no king, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Right? It feels like a phrase that could be ripped out of the headlines right now. That without authority, people just do what they want, and it leads to despair, and it leads to bleakness, and it leads to violence and dismay. Part of what's going on in the Old Testament story of all the violence is this. It's what, it's what happens when, when man is kind of left to themselves. And it, it's screaming for a need. right? Like We have a need of a good king who can bring peace and unity, right? who will take care of the enemies, right? who is one worthy of following and trusting, Church, the nation of Israel was a nation, right? The church is not a physical nation. It's not a physical kingdom. We are a spiritual entity. And we, we trust that God will bring us through all adversity, right? Because of His hand, not because of, of ours. 
And as, as we even think about the display of the bodies um, of these two brothers who brought the head of Ishbosheth, right, as they're hung and displayed with their feet and their hands, right, like there's just, it's ugly and it feels like a curse and it feels uncomfortable. And yet, when we think of the cross, it doesn't feel that uncomfortable. Right? Like we see, we see these two men killed by David and we're like, ugh, it just feels gross. And the cross has become so normalized for many of us that it doesn't feel uncomfortable. It doesn't feel like the curse that it was. It doesn't feel like the violence that it was. And so, right, as we look at this, would we be reminded that Jesus' life also included His death. It was grim and ugly and uncomfortable and violent and a curse so that we would not taste that, face that, or have to fear that. That Jesus has done it on our behalf. But it's, it's not left there, right? We're kind of left with this just like kind of ickiness here. But Jesus walks out of the tomb. And He's alive today. And we are entering a season of Easter where we are celebrating the fact that we had tremendous need and we've been given a tremendous gift in Christ. Right? So would we see our sin... Like, we're worthy to be the one hung up and, and, and cut off and cursed. And yet Jesus steps in and says, no, 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 I'll do it. That you don't. And then as my sons and daughters, will you obey me? Will you trust me? Will you follow King Jesus as I take you back to the Father for all time? In verse 10 of chapter 4, I'm sorry, of chapter 5. It says, David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. I don't want us to take the cross for granted, but I also don't want us to take that phrase that God is with us, was with him, that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, for granted. Because God is with us, we don't have to fear this. Because God is with us, we don't have to fear death and disease and sin and sickness and separation. Would we see the, the, the cross as the violent act that it was, but we would also be reminded that because of it, God is with us. And He's left us His Spirit, He has given us His church, and He's given us His Word, and He's coming back for us again. And so this morning, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Now listen, the Lord's Supper is, is, is for those who are trusting and following Jesus this morning. Right? And we do that, and we, as, we, as we take the Supper, we are reminding ourselves, our hearts, that the reason we have peace with God this morning is because His blood was spilt as we take the juice, not our blood. And that as we take the bread, we're reminded that His body was crushed, not ours. And that in those, the wrath of God was satisfied that we can be called sons and daughters of the King. Because of what Jesus has accomplished. Because of what Jesus has obeyed and done. And now we're walking forward in obedience. And so we, we need to take time to reflect and to say thank you to Him. To confess sin that where we're not trusting and where we're not living in a way that would please Him, that we would walk in obedience. Making much of Jesus and being a reflection to the world that reconciliation is possible. That peace is possible and that life is possible. So I'm going to pray for us. The band's going to come back up and we're going to worship at any point during the next few songs. Feel free to get up as an individual or as a family or with a friend and go back and take the, the juice and the bread as we celebrate as believers, right? That the Lord has rescued us. If you don't know Jesus, 
that maybe even in these moments, God would be, would be whispering to you saying, I've done it. I've done the work. Trust me. Follow me. There'll be some men and women in the back if you need someone to talk to or to pray with. Let's pray. Jesus, you are sufficient. Father, thank you that, that your word um, is not whitewashed, that it's not um, clean and, and make us feel like that we're the only ones who are living in, in bleakness or despair or struggle or violence. But God, that you've overcome and that you've told us that we will have trouble in this world, but to take heart because you've overcome it. God, thank you that you've given us a better way that we can be a people who display reconciliation rather than violence, who can display restoration and peace and hope because our hope is not in this world, but it's in the world to come. And yet, even in this one, you're with us, that you have not left us so we can take part and be courageous. In these moments, would you call those who don't yet know you, would you call them to faith and to salvation? God, would they see that that in you there is forgiveness of sin and there is mercy that will wash over whatever they've done, that no one has sinned so far beyond you that you cannot rescue them this morning. God, for those who do know you, would they confess sin? Would they repent? God, would they trust in your salvation once again that your cross is sufficient? God, that they don't have to do it on their own efforts, but our obedience is simply a way of trusting and following you because of what you have secured for us. Speak, your church is listening. We need you now. In Jesus' name, amen.